Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of the Tavern Voices podcast. I'm your host, Kevin King, and with me is Tyler Crawley. As always, the partner in crime, the uh, the friend extraordinaire. How are you doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. I, is this like a third week or fourth week in a row? I mean, have we done this for a solid month? You know, essentially, we have been doing it forever is what it feels like <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I just wanted to say, I didn't know if we should have like a celebration, like uh, a four show in a row spectacular because I did want to point out real quick and this, this should mean a lot to you that today, 20 years ago, the big Lebowski was released. And if it wasn't for you, I never would have seen the movie. You're the one that first told me about it. And I watched it and thought it was like the coolest thing ever. Uh, and I just wanted to throw that out there. So if this is our, our four month anniversary. It's the 20 year anniversary or the one month anniversary. It's a 20 year anniversary of the big Lebowski. You see, when you sent me that text today, I did not recall that you hadn't seen it until me. Yeah. I don't think I actually remembered that. So that that actually makes me kind of proud that I that I because as we know and our listeners don't know this, but Tyler owns about five hundred and seventy eight <laughs> DVDs and has seen every movie ever. Because um, when we were roommates, you would say, "Hey, have you seen this movie?" And the yeah. answer was always no. Yes. So we would watch it. So the fact that I won up you on a movie is is pretty historical well it's funny because you know how so i'm in my office right now obviously and most people they have offices they have bookshelves behind them with books i actually have nothing but dvds because i was like because now i've moved on to you know apple and i buy my movies online but i'm like what do i do with all these dvds that i now have you can't throw them away i mean you you feel you look at it and go that's how, how much money did i spend on these dvds and so i'm like well i guess i'll display them and make it look something kind of statesman like with the DVDs behind me, kind of, uh, whatever it works. <laughs> and so that's, I don't, I don't have enough books. So I have DVDs instead. It makes you look frozen in one very specific time in American history. <laughs> that's because true. the DVD will end up being just a blip. I'm sure Everyone Harvey Weinstein really remember it. I'm sure Harvey Weinstein probably had a lot of DVDs in his office too. So we got that. I don't know. I don't know that connection you're making there. I don't. I don't want to go anywhere near that. Anywhere near that topic. That's a, whatsoever. That's, that's probably a good idea. But I did want to say just because it's the 20 year anniversary, the dude abides. I just want to say that. That's all I want to say. The dude. The dude definitely abides, and I'm. I'm glad you got this in um, because I'm. I'm getting a little afraid that there's going to be a new podcast tariff. And I know we've only been three weeks <laughs> in, but, but Trump is going to put a tariff on our product and we're going to be done. And this is just going to be a, a long, a, uh, you know, a long memory for, for both of us. That is, you know, that is very true. However, though, we are an American podcast. So more than likely we would actually get protected by anything Trump would do. And it would keep, you know, foreign podcasts from competing with us. So we might actually be in a better position if you were to put a podcast tariff up, but you know what? I'm glad you brought the tariffs up. Well, have you, have you, I mean, do you know what our podcast trade deficit is though, Tyler? It's <laughs> astronomical. What's actually really funny though, is that you could make like a legit argument uh, with podcasts, you know, because the whole idea is that, you know, a podcast is sort of uh, in this sort of new economy area and the, the America is actually really good at, uh, and I guarantee if you were to look at the top podcasts like internationally, uh, that there'd be a lot of American podcasts in there because that is something that America does very well in these, in these sort of new industries. And this whole trade debate, it, that's the one thing that drives me that I just is absolutely crazy is that you have some of these people 
who are looking at America from the view of 1950s, and you have some people looking at it through t- at, at, as we are right now in 2018, and that's the disconnect. And there's always going to be that disconnect. There are people that are always going to argue we need these industries; they're important, they're valid. Uh, you know, some even make national. That's what they're making. They're making a national security argument. But the biggest, the biggest divide is not free trade, you know, protectionism. It's how do you view America? And people say, we need manufacturing, we need steel, we need coal, we need all these things. And if we don't have those, then we're not what America is all about. I don't agree with that. But that is the real trade debate that I feel like is sort of getting lost, where it's not so much that people are for or against free trade. It's people are looking to the future and other people are looking to the past. And that that's the divide right there. Hey, you know, I, I think that you're dead on. And, and before the show, I mentioned that you are the trade expert because <laughs> I, I do understand the principles, but I'm not in the middle of, of looking at what's been going on other than seeing the news headlines over the last couple of weeks. And um, but what I did want to add to your point there is what you said about what is America. And I think the, the interesting situation that we find ourselves in, um, especially with the Trump election, is holding on to an idea of what America was. And I think it's going to be very, it's going to be interesting to see where the country does go because everything about the country is shifting. The makeup of the people, the ideal, the ideology of the people, the industries in the country. I mean, we went from sort of this industrial powerhouse. I mean, that's really when America's power came about when we had such a robust economy. And you know, what, can you maintain that? And if you and should you maintain that? Because if you're doing it through terrible protectionist policies or economically ruinous policies, then what good are you doing instead of embracing creative destruction, which would be real free market solutions? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you the what's so amazing to me about this trade debate. Uh, and I was trying to look it up. You know, when you were sort of taught, we were, you know, you were, um, uh, we, were, we were, you were kind of talking about trade because. Um, I can't remember what the name of it is. That's why I was trying to look it up. But it has something to do with the way that people look at our society and how they value certain people and members of society. And a lot of Trump voters and people in Trump country, whatever you want to call it, they look at you know steel workers and they look at people that work you know uh, in these coal mines and they look at these jobs and they say that those people work hard. Those are the hard workers in society. Those same people aren't going to look at a guy coding. And, you know, it's sort of this sort of macho way, like these guys are working with their hands or doing this hard work. And the argument I always make to sort of try and illustrate why this is not a good idea, what we're doing is that Republicans, for the most part, the same people that are pro-protectionism are still 100 percent against raising the minimum wage to, you know, $15 an hour, the fight for 15. Because they go, oh, it's ridiculous that we would pay some kid to flip a burger or to, you know, handle a computer at McDonald's. That's not worth it. It's going to kill. And they and they make all these great economic arguments. But then when you go to say steel or coal or anything else, then all of a sudden it's like no, no, no. That's different because those jobs are important. They're necessary. But the reality is, there's no value to a steel worker job. There's no value to a coal miner job unless the marketplace values it. There is no difference between working at McDonald's. In fact, you could actually make an argument that working at McDonald's is far more important for our society because, yes, we do need steel and we do need coal, but there are alternatives to that. We need people working in the food industry because the one thing that we do have to eat, the one thing we do have to do is eat. And that's why they always argue, what is it, nine meals away from anarchy? 
where, I mean, food is probably the most valuable economy, uh, commodity that we have. If that were to, we could survive without anything else. You know, if the power went out, other things go out. But if you don't have food, we are in a lot of trouble. And so you could actually make an argument that the guy working at McDonald's is far more valuable to society than the person working the steel mill. But that's not how Trump voters view it. And, you know, they look at someone working in the steel mill and say, that is a valuable job. That is somebody who is valuable to society. And therefore, that job should be protected. What about the guy working at McDonald's? No, he shouldn't be protected. And there's really no difference uh, at all uh, in the grand scheme of things from an economic perspective. But that's the way they look at it. And I think that's also what distorts this entire perspective where, like I said, they value those jobs and believe that they should be protected because they value those workers. They know those workers. And that's how they, that's how they, that's the prism in which they're, you know, they're looking through, but they don't have that same opinion about the people working in McDonald's. But like I said, on the grand, on the grand scale, there really is no difference. Well, and how much is it worth economically to try to create a false economy? That's my whole point. Like, what, what do we do? So, so let's say we raise tariffs, we shift a whole bunch of money. Let's say we call it a bailout. Um, if you just interject, fault, you, you do a infrastructure bill or something where you just put a bunch of people to work with government spending of money that we don't have. What, what good is that doing long term? That's what I really don't understand in most of these arguments. Well, it's and- also it's not long term in that, you know, I mean, I, I, ne- I never know what the end game is because you can't. You know, are we going to leave tariffs on everything forever? Because the argument always seems to be, no, it'll only be temporary. But then what do you think everyone's going to do when you remove the tariffs? So it has to be permanent in order for it to have an overall impact on the economy. Otherwise, it's just going to be a, a, a short blip. And that's the bigger, that's the question I have is that, are we going to continue this indefinitely? Because then how are we any different from China, who apparently is doing the same thing? Well, I think that we are doing exactly what China is doing. And I think yeah. that- both sides keep doing this strange, bizarre flipping of philosophies whenever it's convenient to them. And it's just hurting everyone that's in between. It's just this battle of, well, I'm in power now and I'm going to enact what I feel is a good idea. And then their core supporters support them. You saw this with Obama. You see this now with Trump. And they're the exact same, uh, the exact same, in the exact same position. And I, I just can't wrap my head around it. Well, it's all, if you've noticed, uh, during this trade debate, uh, ever since the announcement was made last week, there have been a lot. There have been some very important people who have been absent, and you know, one of them, Bernie Sanders, for example. Bernie Sanders used to make these exact same arguments on the campaign trail, and he has disappeared. <laughs> where say, is he? Saying so. <laughs> where Where is he? Like, why isn't he out there championing this policy that he agrees with and it's because he doesn't want to give Trump any credit. Some Democrats have Sherrod Brown from Ohio uh, has come out and said that, Hey, this is a good thing. And, and uh, some other Democrats, but where are the big Democrats? In fact, there was a, a, a photo I saw tweeted a couple times on Twitter uh, where it was Peter Navarro standing with Hillary Clinton because the Democrats for the longest time, you know, for the longest time, Republicans were the protectionist uh, uh, party, right? It was um, Hoover, right, in the um, uh, that signed the Smoot-Hotley tariff. I guess it was. I mean, Republicans were the longest supporters of of tariffs and everything else. And then I guess I don't know. I guess when all the labor uh, and all the unions decided to go with the Democrats, that's when the Democrats started because the labor unions love tariffs and protectionist policies. So I guess when they started getting uh, the unions on their side, that's when they flipped. And then we all kind of flip sides. But so now Trump is once again flipping again. But where are all these Democrats 
who, you know, where's Elizabeth Warren? Where are all these people that talked about saving the middle class and saving these working class positions? They're gone. Like, where are they? Like what? And it just goes to show you these people who hate Trump, even when they, even when he does something that they agree with, they just disappear instead of going, well, okay, hey, you know what? I don't like Trump, but at least he did something good. They just disappear from the entire debate. And I think that goes to show you, you know, sort of what's wrong with politics. But um, it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens because, you know, the, the breaking story, and I know this, you know, we're doing this on a podcast, but the breaking story tonight is that Gary Cohen's resigning. And a lot of these quote unquote globalists that they were, or globalist cucks, I guess I have to use the proper phrase, uh, are leaving the White House. And it leaves people like Peter Navarro and, you know, I mean, Bannon's obviously gone, but it leads people like Peter Navarro kind of unchecked. And I wonder if this is just going to be the beginning of sort of a massive shift in our trade policy, uh, because who's going to be there to stop Trump now? I mean, that was his major economic advisor, Gary Cohen. He's gone. So who's now going to be like, don't do this? Because everyone else, I think, is too afraid uh, to tell Trump no. And so- who knows who, what's going to happen? Who is what I want to know is who is actually in charge in the White House. I mean, I've been pretty outspoken against a lot of Trump's policies, you know, and and definitely not a supporter in the primary. And but but I wonder when you see what he's done in the last year, like liberals should be okay with him to you know with some of his policies. Conservatives should be okay with some of his policies. Globalists should be okay with some. Like he's he's done such drastically different things. Um, that I think should make certain segments of the population happy and then piss off the rest of them. And I, I just, I don't know where the ship's headed. Do you have any idea whatsoever? Well, no, I mean, because it, <laughs> a lot of people argued that, you know, the populist wing was infuriated with Trump's tax cuts because the majority of the tax cut was corporate tax cuts. Populists hate corporations, you know, these globalist transnational corporations. I mean, they, they're the- hey, whatever kind of whatever they identify with is is their own <laughs> you know choice. You'll, you'll like this. I heard somebody. I was listening to some interview the other day, and somebody referred to uh, the banksters. Remember, remember Randy Crow when he ran for the seventh congressional district against? Uh, I guess at the time it was uh, yeah. Elario and Will Brazil. Right, that, that crazy guy running who used to call him the. I mean, the guy was like a Breitbart guy. And he used to call everyone the bankster. I was like, I haven't heard banksters in a long time. But I guess bring those, it back. Exactly. But those are the people who like people, people like Peter Navarro, who believe things like that, that these corporations are the worst thing ever. And so when he did that corporate tax cut, a lot of people went, okay, I mean, I guess he's sort of sticking to the ID, you know, the, the orthodoxy of traditional conservatism by going forward with this. And, you know, you mentioned everyone should be happy with something that he's doing. Well, people have pointed out that the tax cuts did not help the people in, you know, the Rust Belt. I mean, because a lot of them, first of all, they're not making any money, so a tax cut's not going to help them. And some of these industries, uh, they just they don't need to hire people, so it, this wasn't necessarily a tax issue. This will help them. This these tariffs because it's going to employ more people in the steel industry and the aluminum industry at the cost of uh, em- employment in other places to a net loss. There's a new report out this morning or last night, I should say, from Trade Partners. Uh, in D.C. or Trade Partnership in D.C., which is a consulting firm, they did an analysis of the tariffs and found 146,000 net job loss, but there would be 30,000 jobs created in the steel and aluminum industries. And so here's my question for you, Kevin. Here's my question for you. Is that, 
you know, if you look at it on paper and, you know, there's an argument to be made for trade and, and there are some people that argue that the trade imbalance is bad for us. And, you know, there's not a lot of evidence of it. So I guess we're going to find out if it's true or not. But the fact is Trump was elected by Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, places who are calling for these tariffs. And so let's just say for the sake of argument, we all agree that tariffs are going to shrink our economy and maybe offset any of the growth that we would have seen from the tax cuts. Because he was elected by them, does he have a responsibility to fulfill that obligation? Or my question is that, you know, does he have an obligation to fill that? Or should he still do what's best for the overall economy and Americans and say, you know what, I have a responsibility to the American people? You know, people always say that, right? Uh, I might have been elected by these people, but I'm America's president. So does he have a responsibility to the American economy? To say, you know what, that's not the best thing to do. It is going to hurt our economy. It is going to hurt employment. Or does he owe it to these voters because he is elected and for him to win re-election, he's got to win. I mean, just like Democrats pander, is you know, it are we supposed to say, okay, hey, Trump, you know, he, he's got to do it if he wants to get re-elected, or should we hold him to sort of the standard and say, hey, you're America's president? That's my big question. Well, I've got two parts. A two-part answer. The first one is strictly philosophical, and it's it's none of his business to implement policy. That's why we have three branches. If the okay. Rust Belt wants <laughs> policies, they need their you know senators and representatives to go do their thing on that side of Capitol Hill, and you know we can do a little schoolhouse rocking. You know what I'm saying? I'm a bill. <laughs> this is what we do. Um, this whole I'm just going to do whatever I want with a pen is kind of what I, I would say. 51% of Americans voted in, him in to fight against. I, at least I thought. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe, maybe it was just, it's our turn. Now we're going to use the pen. Yeah, um, well, that's unfortunately how it, it does seem to go. <laughs> yeah. The, the, um, you know, the, uh, the new boss is the same as the old boss, as the who would say. But um, the, the second part of it is, is more of, it, it's his responsibility to, to become educated, on a subject. Like, I mean, I, I really, we're, we're at a point where I, I really scratch my head and wonder why we can't look at what has been successful and what hasn't. America isn't a small experiment anymore. We've had a lot of drastic legislation over the last 250 years. And I think we should be able to look at tariffs and see what they've done historically. I think we should be able to look at tax policies, see what they've done, entitlement spending, see what they've done, et cetera. So I think I think it's up to him to sit down with people smarter than him and put together a proposal. And if he has to go back to the people of the Rust Belt in Ohio and Pennsylvania um, and, and and talk to them and say, you know, hey, listen, let not to talk down to people. That's that's not my point. This is sounding very elitist. But he's got to say, <laughs> this isn't the way. He said, you know, he has to go and say, I'm looking out for you. I think we can make this better. Do you trust me? Here are the policies I'm going with. Not say, I'm going to implement a really bad policy that I know better than just to try to win your vote in a couple of years when you may or may not go back to work in an industry that we don't need anymore. Uh, you know, I, I think it's got to be a bigger solution than that. I, I agree with you. Um, the problem is that we, when we have data, uh, there was a great uh, report that came out over the summer uh, by trade attorney Scott Lincecum, who I've actually had on the show. I mean, he's awesome. Like the stuff that he's written about trade. Uh, I mean, just it's it's nothing but just factual information. But he did a, I think, 75 year evaluation 
of every tariff and quota and anything, anything related to, to protectionism and found that of everything that we have done, we've seen one success and it was the, it was a small tariff that we had on like bicycles and the net result was it just the, the, the industry didn't decline, but there was no growth in, in, in that, that was the only example in which, uh, there, that you could argue there was a benefit to the United States economy, but everything else, there have been net job losses. I mean, there, there's so much data on this and it's so clear, but the thing is you look at Trump and I, I someone pointed this out over the weekend that, you know, a lot of people are blaming Peter Navarro, who is a long time, you know, he's, he, he's written a book called the death death by China. I mean, this guy's convinced that China's going to like take over the world and he's very, you know, concerned about the trade imbalance and everything else, but he's not convinced Trump. Trump, there was a great clip of Trump on the Oprah Winfrey show in 1988, where he is talking about how Japan is kicking our butt and they're winning and, you know, we're losing because of this trade deficit and they're sending all their cheap stuff here and we're buying it and we can't sell anything there. And all you got to do is just change Japan to China. And that's what Trump's saying today. So he's been making this argument for 30 years. Peter Navarro, is in the White House because Trump, that's really the, pretty much every institutional economist is on the same. I mean, even Paul Krugman admits that free trade is a good thing and we benefit uh, and the trade imbalance has really nothing to do whatsoever uh, with any negative result to the United States. So the, he had to find in, in an economist that had some credibility. Peter Navarro is a PhD from Harvard. So, I mean, that's some, that's some strong credentials, but he's really the only guy that was backing what Trump and his preconceived notion on trade deficits being bad. That's why he's there. So it's not necessarily that Navarro is convincing Trump. Trump has believed that a trade deficit is bad for America since the eighties. And it doesn't matter. I mean, there's, like I said, there's so much data, Gary Cohn, we know has been talking to him. Uh, others have been talking to him and it doesn't matter. He, I mean, I mean how old, was he? 71. What do they say? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. I mean, it doesn't matter how much data is out there. Trump He's, is always going to believe man, that a trade deficit is bad. 70 is the new 40, you know? I would not, <laughs> I would not count him out yet. He's, he's, in, he's in amazing health, so I'm told. Well, I mean, the thing is, he kind of is. I mean, 71 years old to have the schedule that he does. I mean, I, I'm going to be hoping I'm, I'm still walking at 71. But the problem is that Trump is set in his ways. I mean, he's he's never changed his opinion. Uh, you know, it was funny cause I had a guy on the show this morning and we were talking about, you know, trade. He was a big, uh, uh, proponent of these tariffs. And my argument was, well, we were making the same market against Japan in the eighties. And then at the end of the, or the early nineties, the Japanese, uh, asset price bubble burst stock market, real estate and the economy collapsed. And they've essentially had two decades with zero growth and no one talks about Japan anymore. And what I think one of the problems was they were inflating their economy by subsidizing production that they then were shipping to us and then we were buying. But you can't do it forever. At some point, you're going to run out of your your uh, citizenry's money. As uh, what is it? Um, uh, oh, I'm completely Thatcher. blanking here. Thatcher famously said, "The problem with socialism is running people's money." It's the same thing with statism. Is that if you're subsidizing a product, I mean, unless you can subsidize it with something else you can't continue it in perpetuity. And that's my big question is that people have argued that Japan has run, is running a serious, has a serious debt problem. 
Uh, and so maybe we should just continue taking advantage of them subsidizing because pretty soon they're not. And then, you know, either we'll buy our own steel or wherever we're buying it from. Um, but we should take advantage of China, as Milton Friedman said in the 70s, uh, when, a com- when a country subsidizes their products, what they're doing is they're giving us foreign aid. So why not take it as long as they're willing to give it to us? But Trump's Trump has set his ways. And so, you know, you're, you know, the argument about data, I mean, he knows the data. He just doesn't believe it because he's so set that a trade deficit is bad that um, I guess we'll find out. I mean, I I would have thought the stock market reactions and some of the business leaders and it would have made him think twice. But I mean, he's he hasn't shown any sign of wavering. I mean, he's doubling down on this. So I don't know. I mean, maybe if the economy does stifle uh, that, maybe he will reverse it. But I mean, he's pretty set in his way. I don't see it changing. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. And I, I feel like part of me thinks that this was just political posturing. He's just going out there saying things to see what the reaction is. I really do think True. that the publicist, you know, PR side of him says, I'm going to, I'm going to poll myself. I'm going to throw a thought out into the general public and see what the reaction is or see what the reaction uh, from China is. I mean, he's, he's been very complimentary to China lately. I mean, you know, I think he's, he's excited about the possibility of maybe becoming a, a lifelong president. <laughs> but uh, you know, in all in all seriousness, I, I don't know what's going on, and I think that um, personally, th- this is what you get when you don't elect someone on substance. I mean, it's not like he's veered off from his platform. He didn't have a platform. He just said we're going to well, have the, the, best, thing is, though, the best platform ever. It's going to be great. This was his platform, though. I mean, that, that's kind of my point. Is that. Right, we're he's been America arguing great. And he's just going to will it from his mind and and do do great America things to to restore the industries. I mean, I get what you're saying, <laughs> well, but but he's talked about tariffs. He's talked about saving these industries, uh, and so I mean that's not surprising that he's doing it. What is surprising um, is that despite all the evidence and despite all these people, I mean, he's still sticking to his guns. And I mean, I guess maybe that's what Trump is known for. Uh, my question is, you know, if the economy takes a turn and if we start to see signs that this is bad, will he then reverse or will he stand firm? I think that's, that's going to be the big question because that's, you know, everyone was sort of joking over the weekend that everyone was telling him, Mr. Trump, you know, your approval rating is really bad except for the economy. And he was like, oh, okay, hold my beer. And then decided to, like, I'm going to take that too. <laughs> Uh, and so if the one thing he has to hold on to is this economy and I'm the, you know, I'm the, I'm the businessman president, if it looks like his legacy and just, you know, current opinion, people are like, I don't have faith in him to be, to be running the economy. Will that make him go, okay, tariffs over. Uh, this was a bad idea. Or is he just going to double down like he tends to do and say, we're going to stick with this. That's my big question. Cause I mean, clearly he believes what he's doing is right. If it's clear, it's not. Will he, because he's not known for it. Most politicians aren't known for being like, oh, I guess I was wrong. I guess I'll change my opinion on that. Uh, but if it gets bad enough, will he do that? And I, I don't think he will, but there is that slight possibility that his ego might not, might make him do that. Might say, okay, we got to get this economy back. Well, going. I will sure stay glued to the Twitter machine and other various forms of information <laughs> to see what happens. Because, you know, you said that you asked if he was going to stick to his guns and I don't know about that, but I kind of have this feeling that you're gunsplaining to me, Tyler. And <laughs> I don't like to be talked down to like that. 
That, well, you know, sometimes, actually, technically, I would say the majority of the time you're gunsplaining to me because I'm the one who is ignorant of guns. And so when you're trying to explain to me what a particular gun is and well, that's, that is the actual gunsplaining. And um, I guess we should let everyone know that there's this crazy article in the Washington post who wrote it. What Adam was the guy's Weinstein. name? Adam Weinstein, uh, who sounds a lot like what's the guy from entourage. Harvey. Was it Adam? Wein- what? No, no. Remember the remember uh, Ari's nemesis in the first Adam, season? Well, Adam Davies. Adam, it was Adam Weinstein. No, Josh Weinstein. No, 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 not Josh Adam Davies. Weinstein, Josh the Weinstein. Ben Stillings guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no swearing on the podcast. <laughs> but so Adam Weinstein wrote this piece, and I mean, it's it's I mean, it's amazing because he's basically arguing that if someone is trying to argue about guns and they don't know what they're talking about and you try and correct them that very similar to like mansplaining, which is not allowed, right? If a man tells a woman like, Hey, you don't know what you're doing. Let me, let me help. Let me help you out. Uh, that's wrong. That if someone is talking about guns and they're like, you know, they make these stupid comments about how, what did someone say? Fully semi-automatic or they say an AR 15 is automatic and you're like, no, it's not. It's semi-automatic. <gasps> that's gunsplaining. And it's just insane that we're at a place where if someone is making an argument and they don't know what they're talking about, you're supposed to not correct them because that would be rude. And I guess showing your privilege. So, so I'm confused. Howard. Are you, are you against the gun privilege for, or do you think it's, it's bad form to correct someone who is less knowledgeable on a subject like this? Uh, which, which way are you leaning on this one? Cause hmm. I, I kind, of both, I kind of get both directions out of you because I feel like you're saying if you don't well, fully understand, you know, kind of what's what's at hand, how can you really argue for the semantics of it when you're talking about a bill that bans a certain accessory or or a certain type of gun? If you don't know the difference between types of guns, how can you fully say that you're one way or the other? Whereas at the same time, arguing over, uh, you know, before the show, you were talking about clip versus magazine. Is that, you know, yeah. is that the same thing? Well, no, I've said, you know, in the past, I've used those words interchangeably, which they're not interchangeable. And people have sort of, um, uh, and then they'll correct me. But here, so here's my point is that I get what the author's trying. Well, actually, I don't. I, I, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Because, like I said, the mansplaining arguments, because the, the, the whole idea behind mansplaining was that a woman does know what she's talking about, but a man assumes she doesn't, and then he corrects her. Uh, and he's actually wrong, but he thinks because of his privilege of being a male. And to some extent, I, I sort of get that argument. What's happened is that when people are just wrong and they're saying something wrong and you correct them and you are of, I guess, I don't know, how would you, how do you reference that? A higher social class or whatever, a higher privilege class, that when you do that, that it's always wrong. And so if someone gets up there and they've never worked in an industry before, they have no idea what they're talking about. And they start running their mouth and then you go, actually, that's not right. And you try and correct them. It's like, oh, well, you're mansplaining to them or white splaining. But now we've got to gunsplaining. And I do think that there are a lot of gun enthusiasts who are very well versed in guns. And when people like myself talk about it and we use magazine and clip, to me, it does get very semantical where it's kind of like the internet argument where when you're, you're arguing with someone on Twitter and instead of typing, you know, Y-O-U-R, you know, Y-O-U apostrophe R-E, 
and, and you said you just type Y-O-U-R, they go, oh, you used the wrong your. Oh, your entire argument's been destroyed. And it's like, you know what I was saying. Like, stop making a big deal about that. And so when someone says, do we need, you know, a 20-round clip or magazine, and they go, oh, that's not what a clip is. And it's like, okay, but you get my point, what I'm trying to argue. Uh, and so I do think that that there is some validity to this idea that people, if, as long as you have the basic concept of the gun, but if, you know, there was that clip going around the internet where that that news crew was was filming a shotgun and they called it an AR-15, that you probably can't talk about guns. If you don't know the difference between a shotgun and a semi-automatic rifle, yeah, you might want to stay out of the gun debate. But like I said, if you're just not using the proper terminology for the accessories of an AR-15, it doesn't mean that you can't be involved in the gun debate. And so like everything else, I think there's some validity to it, but it gets taken to the extreme and then destroys the entire argument. Oh, I d- and I wanted to point out that you did actually use clip correctly in that instance. Oh, they are clips on the internet. Um, <laughs> so what's a magazine? So what's a mag? It's something you read. It's got glossy. Um, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Glossy pages. Like National Review, your favorite. You mean on iPad? <laughs> and I what? Um, I said like 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 we read on our iPad. Like who even gets a magazine anymore? <laughs> like doesn't everyone get them on iPads now? You don't even – I don't know. Are they still called magazines or is that only in the physical form? Are they a magazine? They, they're probably called iZines now or something. As I was going to say, yeah, iMags. <laughs> uh, that's going to get banned. That sounds too gun-like if you were to call it an iMag. But no, what is, the, what is the difference between a magazine and a clip? So a clip is actually when the bullets are held together with a clip um, and it feeds into certain type uh, weapons. So if you think of like a um, – um, it, it really depends on the weapon. Like a magazine is where you physically load the bullets into a standalone device and you can build okay. that. That's, that's a magazine. Okay. Okay. So when you uh, talk about like a 30 round mag, a 10 round mag, it's, it's a, 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 a it's on separate object that you, you reload. Okay. Uh, and, and like I said, I mean, it, it, it clearly is something where if someone were to say a 10 round mag or a 10 mount clip, it's clearly what they're talking about is the ability for someone to sort of prepare for, you know, a mass shooting and have all this ammo with them and the ease at which you can interchange these devices is really the main point. And so when someone gets hung up on, oh, you called it a clip or a magazine, I, I do think there's some validity to that. But like I said, if you think a shotgun's an AR-15, maybe stay out of the debate. So I think that there is there is some truth. But like I said, I think, I think the overall uh, – and, and that article in particular is kind of ridiculous too. But I, I give the guy the benefit of the doubt, and I'm like, I think I get what he was saying, but he also took it to too, too big of an extreme and kind of lost me as well. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that one of the points that he's missing is that there is the validity that you brought up, that if you are incorrectly stating an opinion about an inanimate object, then that does affect the validity of your point. If you're saying that you are afraid of a certain type of lawnmower – and that lawnmower actually doesn't do what you say it does, that would also be valid. I think that sometimes people put guns into this own category where you don't have to ever have touched one, owned one, understand how it works or anything to then just make assumptions based on what you've grown up seeing in video games or in movies, which are not factually correct. And so I do agree that there is a a distinct difference between mansplaining about, well, you don't understand that AR is an assault rifle, it's Armalite, at the same time, that's a very valid point because saying it's an assault rifle because it's an AR is factually incorrect. So yeah. at, at a certain point, you do have to have a, an, an, an intelligent argument 
And I think that's what it gets to the core at is that you can't have a discussion between people on either side because to someone who is anti-gun, the AR might as well mean, you know, automatic killer weapon with the, the K is silent. And yeah. Uh, and also weapon doesn't start with an R. I was just spitballing there. And 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 between someone who has to tell you that that they've researched the AR platform as basically a minor in college and that therefore you cannot speak on it. But why can't there be a discussion from both parties? That's what's lacking. Well, and I also think that if we were to say that people that know very little about uh, a topic and then therefore they can't talk about it. First of all, it would, it would pretty much destroy my industry. <laughs> talk radio would pretty much go off the air. Uh, because and the thing is, is that no one, I mean, it is, it is actually impossible for someone to be an expert in everything. And so therefore to have a, I mean, any type of show where you talk about current events, it would just be impossible. I mean, every news anchor would be fine. I mean, you just couldn't do it because the human brain is just incapable of being of, of having that much information. And that's why you tend to have people that know kind of a little bit about everything. And then when it comes to a particular issue, either they know a lot about it or they invite someone on the show that knows a lot about it. Uh, but also, I mean, yeah, I mean, it would, it would, it would mean Facebook would be illegal. Twitter would be illegal. I mean, <laughs> half of our, you know, our 99% of our society is made up of people talking about things they have no business talking about. Uh, and so that's just the reality of any debate. But yeah, I think you do sometimes get some some elitism where someone's like, oh, well, you know, for example, this, you know, we're just talking about trade. Like Peter Navarro has a PhD in economics from Harvard. On paper, I shouldn't even be t- disagreeing with him, right? I should 100% agree with everything that he's going to be doing. Um, but that's not how our society works. And as we know, sometimes it means a lot. Sometimes it means very little. Uh, and in that case, I would argue it means very little because there are people that I've talked to that have no credentials uh, and seem to have a far better grasp of the whole trade issue. So I do think that y- you know you don't want to get too elitist and say you have to be you know you have to have a PhD in something to be able to talk about it. But at the same time, basic knowledge is probably a good thing. Uh, and if you're and if you're absent that, uh, maybe just watch for a while <laughs> until you've done the research. I uh, you know. I think that you should always question anyone. The more letters they have next to their name, that's that's <laughs> how much more you should question them. I'm 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 not convinced that that Harvard or Yale produce the uh, the cream of the crop as they used to. But I'm just I'm just a, a cynic, you know, from a from a state sponsored school. That's that's all I am. <laughs> just a, just a man of the people. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. About a, yeah, but you're talking about. I mean, you're right now like one of the top public universities in the country. You know, on paper, Tyler, on paper, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. What I'm trying to say is that you're an elitist. That's all I'm trying to say. Right. I feel elitist every, every time I'm on campus, I just think of how much better I am than everyone else. It's kind of what fuels yeah. me to be there. That's right. Just go to a couple of fraternity parties at Chapel Hill and you will definitely feel like an elitist with the uh, antics that are going on there. Like these clearly are the brightest people in the state of North Carolina by their actions here tonight. So I would nothing be, makes you feel more like an elitist. Yeah, I would be Will Ferrell and it would be embarrassing to all. <laughs> yeah, that is true. That is true. Old school uh, in full effect. Um, before we run out of time, uh, we should probably talk at least about some of the craziness that's going on in the state of North Carolina. Hey, and I, I, I couldn't know, have you, segued better than that. You know, go. <laughs> do you want to talk? I don't know. Do you want to talk about, um, 
Dwayne Hall, because I think that's kind of yeah. that's kind of a fun story. I don't really want to talk about any of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I want to keep talking about it until the midterms, and then we can stop talking about it. But until the midterms, we got to talk about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the reports out um, about sexual impropriety claims. I guess is that the proper term. Or should I? I think it's se- I think it's sexual misconduct. He's being accused of sexual misconduct. A, a series of inappropriate sexual advances, says NC Policy Watch. Yes. So yes, um, I, I think you just say hashtag Me Too circumstances. People will understand there is a gravity of a situation against Representative Dwayne Hall, and this comes after essentially his entire party, from the top down, Governor Ray Cooper included, has just disavowed them, said he needs to step down, throw him out with the, uh, with the bathwater. Well, and what's amazing, and this is to me, this is my, my biggest argument for the situation is that, you know, I've talked to some people in Raleigh and they've said that this was sort of an open secret that he was sort of inappropriate with, with women. Uh, but no one said anything, you know, like with Harvey Weinstein and everyone else. Now, what he's being accused of is nothing close to Harvey Weinstein or anything else, or some of these other accusations. But he is being accused of being inappropriate, uh, I guess, forcing himself onto some women, you know, with regards to kissing them and then sort of not taking no for an answer and making inappropriate comments to staffers, things like that. So it's nothing along the lines of Harvey Weinstein, but it's an open secret like Harvey Weinstein. And to me, that was sort of validated by the speed at which the Democrat leaders and the governor were like, get out. I mean, it, it, it wasn't like, Oh, Dwayne Hall's a great guy. We're going to back him. Cause even Hollywood for a little while kind of stuck, didn't really say anything with Harvey Weinstein. And then it got really bad and they were like, okay, you got to go. But they almost like, I mean, it was like immediate that they were like, Dwayne Hall's got to go. So it leads me to believe that they must've known about this and they were, you know, okay with it until it became public. And now they're, Oh, disgusted. And this is horrible. But well, hold on, what hold to on. me is fascinating. Well, yeah. Hold that thought. Don't lose it. Because I do want to ask you about what you just said, because that was my question. Do you think that it is either well-known slash um, there's, there's just overwhelming evidence for this to happen this quickly? Or do you think it is due to the, the way the conversation has changed with Me Too that they had to jump to a, a quicker reaction than they would have, let's say, a year or two ago? Uh, I, I can see that argument. I could, but even with, you know, I'm trying to think. That's why I gave you the with, argument to, to give you something to think about. Well, this, we have never seen that uh, people that quickly turn on one of their That's own. True. Uh, even Al Franken. And there was photographic evidence with Al Franken. They were like, well, you know, he's a comedian. And then, and then when more stories came out, then they went, okay, this has to go. The same thing with John Conyer. I mean, all these all these Democrats in the beginning, it was sort of, well, we're going to see, you know, no one was calling for their resignation. But with him, it was almost immediate. And so to me, there is a difference in that. Yes, I think that uh, people are more likely to, especially Democrats, because they've gone all in on this movement that, yeah, when someone gets accused, they have to sort of believe the accuser. Unless, of course, it's, you know, Bill Clinton or (laughs) – and even in some cases, like I said, some Democrats get the benefit of the doubt. But they gave this guy no benefit and were immediately calling for him to resign. And so to me, that does seem like – I get that the climate's changed, but that was still too quick. It was still, well, you know, let's see. I mean, it's just accusations. 
And it wasn't like Al Franken. And, and John, I mean, like I said, what he's being accused of still isn't as bad as what we've seen other guys who have had to leave office for. Uh, like I said, John Conyers, you know, the things that he was accused of doing with staffers and, and like I said, Al Franken was at least on, you know, on video. And so the fact that it wasn't that extreme and they immediately called, it must, they must know that he was sort of known for this. That's, I mean, that, I, I don't know for, I don't know for sure, but to me it does. Look yeah. Like I, I think that's a valid question because I mean, a valid answer. My question of course is valid um, because I was just wondering um, about that myself because it was <laughs> an extremely quick reaction and, and I know nothing about it. Um, you know, other than what the, the news yeah, says. Do I. And if, if it, and my, you know, like I said, if I haven't talked to some people who told me it was sort of this open secret and I said, okay, that's interesting. And then just how quickly and it was like everybody, uh, it wasn't just like, you know, just Cooper, because I think what would have happened if let's say it wasn't as well known, maybe Cooper would have done it, but you would have seen some of his colleagues sort of like, well, you know, we're going to see, or just not respond, just say, you know, just no comment or whatever. They immediately answered that question. And so that's why I think they could have given it a little more time just to see. And they didn't, which means that they must have had their mind up made already. But it could have been. I mean, the climate has changed, but I think that we just have never seen, especially for a state rep, where there's going to be far less attention. I mean, national attention is different than statewide attention. And so for them to react that quickly, because there's not really going to be a media circus like you're going to see with Al Franken. So they could probably play it off even longer. And the fact that they didn't take that, that option means that, well, they must, they must know what the outcome is going to be. But I did want to say that, you know, we got the midterms coming up and the Democrats are trying to run on women empowerment and the Me Too movement and the you know, women walking around with the pink hats. And, and this is not only is Dwayne Hall not resigning, he's still running for reelection as of now. And I mean, he's fighting these, these allegations and now he's alleging, and this is where it gets even better. He's now alleging that a girl that he once dated, Megan Glacier, who works for the justice center, which I guess is sort of the parent group that uh, policy watch that reported the story is a part of. He's arguing they went out, he broke up with her and this is her way of going after him. You know, hell has no fury like a woman scorned. This is her going after him. And you know, Rick Lazier, everyone, a lot, or at least a lot of people know that name. Um, this could get very bad for the Democrats. And this is the last thing they want. I mean, they wanted to run on Trump and the, you know, the, the, uh, the male dominated White House and the, um, you know, sexism. And I mean, they were planning on running on Me Too. And this, well, let me ask you on that point their midterm um, elections. about how you think the interconnectedness of all of this goes, because I think it is a very messy situation for the Democrats and the fact that you have uh, Representative Hall as, as the center of the attention, right? You have former Representative Rick Glazier, who is now the head of yeah. the, the Justice Center, his daughter working there, who did have a prior relationship with Hall, who's now this is all, all this dirt's being brought up. Um, in the news, you you have the the Democratic minority yeah. leader, Representative Jackson, um, having to come out and 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 really attack probably someone who's been a, a pretty good friend and ally. I mean, I don't know personally what their life is like, but I mean, they're they're working together in a in an official capacity a lot, um, and 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 then obviously you've got the the governor weighing in on it. Uh, wh- what do you think about all of that web? 
Well, and then you have the other problem, and I actually saw uh, uh, Pete Callender was talking about this on Twitter. Was pointing out that actually the guy that runs Policy Rob uh, or Policy Watch, Rob Schoenfeld, probably should have disclosed all of this because now it does not that I believe Dwayne Hall. Uh, I do think that that would be quite extreme. I mean, the ego that he has to have to, to to think that like, man, that woman loves me and thinks I'm so amazing that, you know, she's going to use this organization that her father runs to try and take him down. And it, by doing that would destroy herself, her father. I mean, legitimacy. I mean, that to me just seems like an extreme uh, thing for him. I mean, let's, she was like a stalker or something to go to that extreme, to go after a guy you used to go out with. I don't know. I mean, that he's, he has an ego. <laughs> I think we all, we're all aware of that. But yeah, Schoenfeld, I think, really did himself a disservice. And this is what Callender was talking about because he didn't disclose this and say, hey, you know, just so everyone knows, uh, Megan Glazer, who's not responsible for the story, is not part of the story, but she did have a previous relationship and she is a part of this organization. And you're just sort of to, to clear the air. Um, I think, I don't know how you could have gone about doing that, but I do think that, yeah, it does complicate things. And like I said, I don't think it's true because I mean, that would have to be just, I mean, that'd be a, that'd be a kamikaze mission for, for Megan Glazier because I mean, it, it would take everyone down. I mean, she would destroy not only herself and her father's career, but the liberal movement that she supposedly supports because it would ruin the justice center and policy watch from a credibility standpoint. And that just seems a little extreme to get back at a guy that they dated. I don't know how long they dated, uh, but I don't think that's very likely, but I do think that it also creates a problem for policy watch who didn't disclose this information. So it's just the Democrats are just, I mean, this is supposed to be their year and we got uh, primaries in May and things. I mean, he wins the primary and, or even if he loses it and then he feels like he was, you know, was Slandered, mistreated right. and stays in to, you know, to spite the Democrats, that's even worse I mean, it, it's a lose-lose. If he loses, he's going to be even angrier. And if he wins, they got a guy running who's basically being accused of being a sexual predator. I mean, it is a horrible situation for the Democrats in a year that was supposed to be like their year to take back the House and Senate. So, I mean, as a Republican, it's it's sort of like you're just sitting there watching it, like eating popcorn. Like, just everyone stay out of it, Republicans. Stay out of it. Let them fight amongst each other. Because that's the best thing for the Republicans right now. But yeah, Democrats got some problems. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I will give you another question because I just don't feel like talking right now. Um, so <laughs> I got you covered. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, you, you've 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 never been short on words. Um, what what policies do you think, in light of where we are now in the um, in the awareness, the the Me Too movement? Um, with, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you watched the Oscars. You were you were grilled to your television. Uh, Absolutely. Glued to it, maybe, is the phrase I was going for. Um, <laughs> where, um, where, where do you think a process has to come into place where it goes from, um, you know, from just news stories coming out or people uh, tweeting information and taking down people's careers to a due process type environment. Um, you know, some of these policies, I know Megan Glazier worked at the General Assembly. Representative Hall was a, you know, a member at the General Assembly. Was the relationship then? Um, you know, if, if, you know, some of the people in, mentioned in these articles, um, I know one was like a political strategist or maybe a lobbyist. I mean, there's a lot of different actors um, involved. 
what should be the process? I mean, what do you, what do you think would be a, a, a common sense way of going about making sure that these sorts of issues are, are brought to light in a, in a, you know, confidential way. Uh, they are handled swiftly, but they are, you know, researched and, and can you trust that? I mean, do you, do you think that the system can, can be positive or do you think that the system will just always be the system and it won't effectively help those who have been victimized? Well, I mean, the, the problem that we have is that we've always had a system, you know, the courts and due process has always existed. And yeah, I mean, arguably back in the day, it was very difficult for women to be believed. I mean, one of the problems that you have with rape, unless it, unless someone goes to the police, you know, almost immediately after there's not going to be any evidence. And so it's going to be a, he said, she said, and there's always going to be a problem with that is because there's always going to be a bias, always going to be a bias for one side or the other. The question that, you know, we're facing is that for the longest time in our society, we were clearly um, misguided in that we always believed the guy, the guy was always believed, you know, women came forward, they weren't trusted. Uh, and what's happened is the pendulum swung way too far in the other other direction now. But the, the, the other problem is that it's the court of public opinion. You're never going to have due process in the court of public opinion. And, 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 and I don't know how you solve that because it's just, it's always going to be, well, what people think. I mean, you had the Oscars, you know, you brought up the Oscars. I saw someone point out that, you know, it's kind of interesting that Kobe Bryant, who was actually charged with rape and then uh, reached a settlement out of court that, you know, people, you know, joke about that he probably paid her who knows how much money for this, everything to go away, but he was actually charged with rape. Meanwhile, Kevin Spacey has not been charged with anything. And I still think Harvey Weinstein hasn't been charged with anything. And yet they have been almost written out of Hollywood. And yet Kobe Bryant's up there getting an award. And it's like, but that guy was charged with rape. <laughs> and a lot of people look back and go, well, we don't know if he paid her off or was it legit or, but he was charged with rape. Everyone else has been accused of it. And they've been completely, now Harvey Weinstein's a little different and Kevin Spacey, I think there is some validity to their arguments, but there is no standard. I mean, if, if we were using a, a judicial standard, then Kobe Bryant would be the far uh, guiltier one versus Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey. And yet they're gone and he's accepting an award on stage. So I don't know how you deal with the court of public opinion because the court of public opinion is just people. And for the most part, when it, especially when it comes to due process and, and evidence, people are kind of stupid and it just comes down to what they feel. And I don't know what shapes that and what doesn't shape that. I think, yeah, I think it does hurt that Kevin Spacey, well, Kevin Spacey, remember he famously was like, well, I'm gay. And he came out, he was gay thinking that was going to help him. Hey, you've got, <laughs> but to, I do you've think- got to check your privilege. Okay. You've got to <laughs> properly align yourself on the privilege scale. It can help your case in front of certain audiences. Well, it, it can. And I think, I, I, I do think that, you know, Harvey Weinstein being a straight white male uh, Kevin Spacey, at least in the charges originally were, you know, put forward. A lot of people thought he was a straight white male. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that maybe Co- Kobe Bryant maybe gets maybe more of the benefit of the doubt because he's black versus Kevin Spacey and Harvey Weinstein and a lot of these other guys in Hollywood who once again have never been charged and they have been written out of Hollywood and shunned. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be because like I said, there's so many people that have come forward that you just look at it and go, okay, I think that has to be, you know, some truth, but there's no, we don't, the court of public opinion is never based off of evidence and the standards of court 
and due process, it's all based on how people feel. And people look at Harvey Weinstein and go, oh, oh, he's disgusting. He's awful. He's privileged, blah, 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 blah. But they look at Kobe Bryant and go, hey, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. And a lot of people would say, that's not fair, but that's the problem. Their court of public opinion kind of sucks because there's nothing you can do about it. No, you're you're right. It's it's um, unfortunately a mob mentality a lot of day a, a lot of times these days, whether it be guns or yeah. harassment or, or whatever else. It's it's here's what we want. We want it done now. Go sign an executive order and be done with it. You know, screw the process. Um, screw trying to 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 come to some sort of discussion or agreement on it. Um, it's just it's a knee jerk reaction, and um, I, I think it makes it a sticky situation. So I think it'll be interesting to see. Um, how things do pan out here in North Carolina, especially in an election year. Um, I'm glad that you had made that last statement racial um, because now we <laughs> have brought up straight white males, um, gay white males, black men and women. Um, many of those things that you and I don't know a lot about. Um, so therefore, our arguments are invalid. So I just well, want to exactly. thank you for that. I was mansplaining uh, and whitesplaining at, 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 at the end of my argument. But, and that's, that's just thing. not even a pleasant like, <laughs> suffix to a word, planing, you know? Planing, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, anything that has plain in it is going to suck. You've I mean, got some, you it's, some mansplaining to do, you know? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that comment and move on to, I just wanted to say that Dwayne Hall, the problem he's going to run into is he is a straight white guy, an old straight white male. And hey, I so said that's 70 why, is the new 40. He's not that old. That's true. That's true. Uh, but he's got, I think he's got white hair. And so, you know, if you have those characteristics, you're automatically looked at as the white male patriarchy, you're the problem. And so he's going to get no benefit. And they, they want him gone. The Democrats do. And I think the more they fight him, uh, the more he's going to dig in. And because let's face it, he's not going to have a comeback. And, you know, I, I think I wrote about this earlier in the week. If he if he leaves office and then he's exonerated, who's going to care? He's, he's out of office. So he realizes the only option he has to clear his name is he has to do it while he's still a name. And that gives him even more motivation not to leave office. And so, yeah, the Democrats have a problem because they're looking at it going, man, people are not going to believe him. And, yeah, they, they got a problem. Yeah. Well, I don't believe you. And we're out of time. So have to end it there. And um, if any claims come, well, I did want to, one, one final question I did have for you. Did you have to take your Bumble profile down uh, for the gun, gun post or anything? <laughs> no, I did not. I, I, I did not. Okay. Um, when I, when I saw the news come, come out that Bumble is asking anyone with a gun in their profile to be reported instead of swiped, I was concerned about you because you're, you're basically the only person I know still swimming in the dating pool. So I just That's was looking true. out for you. That's true. I was going to make a joke about a different kind of gun in the photo, but I just, I decided against so, it. You just did it anyway. <laughs> this is what what's happens. Funny though, is what's funny though, is that, uh, I mean, just, just to point out is that, you know, I'm not a, I, you know, I've talked to girls that are on these dating apps, right? And I, I, I don't know if I buy that either, but <laughs> that's, that's less believable than me owning a gun. Uh, but, and, and the thing is, is that being a girl on a dating app is like the most horrible thing on the planet, right? Because you, you end up matching with these guys and the guy, you know, you're like, Hey, how you doing? And the guy's like, Oh man, I better take a photo of my, uh, genitalia and send it to her. It's like, I don't know where, I don't know where these guys are, but apparently they exist. Because they're in Congress. Talk to girls. Yeah. They're in Congress. Well, not, well, no, some of them are now in jail. 
And I'm, I'm just like, I'm like, where do these people exist? And so the thing is, it's funny that, that these dating apps, which are known for people sending these inappropriate photos of themselves, that that's not what gets you banned. It's the gun photo that's going to get you banned. And I thought they have a bigger problem they need to worry about. Uh, but I, I do, I, I did see that and think it was funny that they're going to get rid of those posts. And but I'll tell you what's interesting is I've seen a lot of girls on there um, with guns who uh, are hunters. Uh, or they're just like shown off in AR because, I mean, this is the South. And I thought that was kind of fascinating because, I mean, clearly I don't have a gun in any of my photos, but I have seen girls that have them. And so I think a lot of people were thinking like, oh, this is going to hurt you know guys. But I've seen a lot of girls that have it. And I think gr- you're a girl. It's not a bad idea because you know a lot of guys are really into that. And they're like, whoa, that girl's posing with a gun. She likes to shoot. That's amazing. She likes to hunt. That's amazing. And so – yeah, we'll see if this holds up because it, it could be somewhat detrimental, like I said, in some parts of the South where it does seem to be more prevalent. And obviously people you know, in the North aren't going to be posing with as many guns. But uh, yeah, I thought that was kind of a dumb policy for, for a dating app that's known for inappropriate pictures. That's the one that gets banned. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point that I did not think about um, and that, you know, Bumble itself is framed after um, – Whitney, I think Wolf Wolford, Whitney Wolf something uh, started Bumble, and the whole point of it was to empower women. That's why women have to make the first move. Yeah, and what hasn't come up in this conversation is how guns empower women. I mean, uh, someone famously said that guns have done more to empower women, uh, or, or Smith and Wesson did more for for women's rights than than any other feminist or. There's phrases like that out there. I don't know. Well, there's the one it's uh God or God created man and woman and Colonel Colt made him equal is the one that uh that's way before. (laughs) (laughs) And but no, you're right. I mean, there is sort of an empowerment there. Uh and you know, a woman with the gun, it does like I said, there's women on there that are, you know, they're like, I like to go hunting on the weekend, and it's a way for them to sort of show this guy that like, hey, I'm this is something that I'm into. And I don't think that a lot of people thought about that. And so it'll be interesting to see how, if this stays because it actually could have an impact more. Cause I think a girl would be more likely to pose with a gun than a guy, because if a girl does it, it's kind of like maybe in a way it's not as, and this is sexist, but if a guy's in his photo with a gun, it could be like kind of a turnoff. <laughs> like, Ooh, that guy's a little too excited about having that gun in that photo. But a girl, it's like, I'm just highlighting something about myself and a guy could go, Ooh, you know, I, I like to hunt on the weekends too. And I, I, it might have a bigger impact on in the South on women than, than with men. And yeah. well, and, and, and if that is true, Bumble is about women empowerment, as you said, uh, if they would then change that policy, but. Or how, or how a gun in a photo might keep uh, the, the female safer. That's uh, true. Someone who's like, Oh, I'm going to do something inappropriate or I'm going to, I'm going to be a danger to this person. And she goes in, you know, in her photo, this guy's like, you know what? She's not a soft target. She might just shoot me. So let me go after someone else. That's, that's also a good point. There are a lot of creepers on these dating apps, present company, not included, of course. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, that, 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 that's a legitimate argument as well, but you know, I think it's all for show. Are they really going to kick people off? And I mean, how do you know if they're even enforcing it? <laughs> like, I, yeah, who knows? Know. But but the um, the founder of the company was pretty adamant about it. They issued a statement and said to report the photos. So we shall see. I mean, I guess you shall see 
the married population won't see much of that. So you'll just have to fill us in next time on Tavern Voices. Tyler Crawley, my friend, it was good having you. Yeah, man. As always, I'll I'll let you know. I I will tell you. I will. I will be uh, keeping records of the Bumble Gun pictures that I see and let you know about it. I I appreciate that. I am (laughs) also your host, Kevin King. That was Tyler Crawley, and we will uh, see you next week.